Welcome to the Christchurch Manchester Theology Podcast. The CCM School of Theology meets monthly on Saturday mornings at Luther King House in Manchester. For more information about the training that we offer or about our church in Manchester, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. On Saturday 21st of September, Andy Wisdom taught two sessions at the Christchurch Manchester School of Theology. This is the second of those sessions, where Andy looked at the doctrine of the church. Andy's one of the leaders at Christchurch Manchester and is currently doing a PhD in Biblical Studies. Let's take a listen to the session. Let's move on to think about the doctrine of the church, or to use its very posh word, ecclesiology. Churchiology, I heard down there, I like it. <clears throat> okay. The, uh, if there's an overarching question for the, this second session, it's, I think it's, what is the church for? What is the church for? Why does God have a church? What is the church and what's it made up of? And what is our purpose as the church? The first mention of the church in the New Testament Matthew 16, verse 18, when Jesus says this, and I tell you that you are Peter. It's the best pun in the Bible, in my opinion. I tell you that you are Peter, which is Petros in Greek, and on this rock, Petra, which is just the accusative form of Petros, I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Now, that has been, transla- that has been interpreted in a whole host of different ways, including one way uh, in which Peter kind of became the cornerstone of the church, in a way, but he became kind of the foundation of the church, and there's an apostolic succession that leads all the way to the current pope. That's one way that verse has been interpreted. We're going to think about a couple more in just a second, but Jesus said, look, I'm going to build my church. It's only mentioned, that word, the word for church, is only used uh, twice more, in the Gospel of Matthew, and they're used in the same sentence, um, and it probably doesn't actually mean church as we understand it. It probably means a community of, uh, of kind of Jewish elders or Jewish leaders, an assembly of Jewish leaders, which means that in the Gospels, Jesus uses the word church once. What do we do with that? Well, actually, we have to understand that most of what we know about the church, as the church, actually comes from the letters of Paul and from the other letters of the New Testament, but actually we have to understand as well that the church isn't the entire picture of what God is doing. So the, the word, the etymology of the word, which just means what words mean, um, it's from two words. Okay, the first one is uh, the most direct kind of close to the word we have for church is kuriakon, which means belonging to the Lord. Okay, now that word probably wasn't used for the church until kind of actually after the whole canon of the Bible was put together. Uh, the word we find in the New Testament um, sounds nothing like the word church. It's the word ecclesia. Okay, so which is uh, which is a compound word for, that, that has the word ek, which means out from, and uh, kaleo, which means call. Okay, so uh, there's this idea that the word ecclesia means the called out ones. Okay, now we can we can take that very literally and think of all the things that that God has called us out of and all the things that God has called us into as Christians. But actually, there's a lot of non-technical uses of this word in the New Testament as well. Uh, really, it means a group. Okay? It generally just means a group. In, uh, in Acts chapter 7, verses 38, it refers to the Israelites when they were in the wilderness. Uh, the word ecclesia is used all the time in the Greek Old Testament, the uh, Septuagint, to refer to the assembly of Israel. And in uh, Acts 19, verses 32, it refers to a mob. Okay? So actually, there's some non-technical uses of this word in the New Testament. We shouldn't leap to the conclusion that it always means the call-out ones. Although, of course, 
That is who we are as the church today. But usually when the word ecclesia is used in the New Testament, it means pretty unambiguously church. A group of called out believers who, if we're to read what Paul says in Ephesians 1 verse 1, are God's holy people who are in Christ. Okay, that's what the church means. God's holy people who are in Christ. Now, usually in the Bible, usually in the New Testament, this refers to the local church. Okay, you uh, are probably here today partly because you are part of a local church. Okay, and as part of your journey as a Christian, you you want to kind of study theology a little more. But actually, what I notice here is I don't recognize lots of faces that there are multiple local churches here, which is a wonderful thing. Okay, so usually that's what the word means. So, for example, when Paul writes to the churches in Galatia, he's referring to specific groups that are meeting in specific houses and that are that are forming churches okay local churches sometimes however it refers to the universal church okay the church and I think in my notes usually you'll find that if I'm referring to the universal church I use a capital C if I use a low if I'm referring to the local I might use a small c I don't know how consistent that is we'll find but um we'll find out but but sometimes it refers to the universal church this idea that all the believers on earth make up the church Okay, so in Matthew 16, 18, when Jesus said, on this rock, I will build my church, uh, we don't think that he meant, I'm going to build a church here, and then a Presbyterian church is going to plant over there, and then a New Frontiers is going to plant there. I don't think that's what Jesus was talking about. He referred to the universal church. In Ephesians 5, 25, when, um, uh, I think that's where Paul says that he's referring to Christ and the church, or that Christ laid down his life for the church, universal church. Okay, lots of other examples of that as well. Uh, So the church can be understood to be local and it can be understood to be universal. And the church can also, in in kind of systematic theologies of the church, you'll always find this distinction, that the church can be understood to be invisible and visible. Okay, And that's not quite the same as the universal and the local church. When we refer to the church as the invisible church, we can actually actually throw that as wide as saying this is all the people who um, who will have eternal life because of their faith in God. Okay, And if you're referring to it in that sense as the invisible church, then you could potentially include, um, you can include anybody who, you know, kind of has faith in Jesus in their heart, but we don't know about. Perhaps they they haven't attended a church. I don't know. Um, Or you could refer to people actually who before Christ actually put their faith in God, who the New Testament suggests people like Abraham and Moses and all sorts of followers like that, who will be part of God's coming kingdom. Okay, so this idea of the the invisible church. Okay? Now, you don't, have to, you don't have to agree with all of those things, but the idea is that the invisible church is bigger than the visible church. Uh, as Wayne Gruden puts it, the invisible church is the church as God sees it. Okay? God can see a person's heart. We can't. All right? God can see a person's future. We can't. And then there's the visible church, otherwise known as the church as we see it. So the, the visible church, in theory, could be made up of people who actually don't have faith in Jesus but attend church. Okay, so the visible church is the people who, who, uh, who, can, who profess to be believers in Jesus, who gather to worship him in churches all over the world. Okay, so there's this idea of the invisible and the visible church. Okay, a question for you to discuss with the person next to you for just a minute. In fact, I'm going to give you, I'm only going to give you 30 seconds for this one, okay, is when did the church begin? Go. There's the universal church. When did the church begin? Okay, I'm interested to hear what you think. No time for debate at this point, but I'm interested to hear what you think. Um, can I just have maybe three people? Just somebody put your hand up and shout out, when did the church begin? Short answers. Enoch, first man taken to heaven. Enoch, first man taken to heaven. Anyone else? Pentecost. Pentecost. Anyone else? 
People of Israel called out. Anything else? Sorry? Adam and Eve, all right, interesting. Okay, let's, uh, let's see, shall we? Let's see what the Bible says about when the church began. Well, um, what I want to say here is that I'm not necessarily going to... I don't, I don't want to kind of preach this as if I'm, I'm exactly right in this point, because ultimately it does come down to how we define the word church. But um, the, church is, the church as we understand it today, I think, is actually a distinct New Testament entity. Okay, it's something that uh, actually we, we first hear of, we first understand in the New Testament. Now, I'm going I'm to bring the counter-argument to that in just a moment. Okay? But actually, the church is something that actually seems to appear in the New Testament. We hear a lot about it in Acts. We hear a lot about it in the letters of Paul. When Jesus said he was going to build his church, the verb he uses is definitely a future He says, I will build my church, not I started building it a long time ago, which can lead us to think that actually the origins of the church were actually sometimes after Jesus died and rose again. So where would we put the beginnings of the church if we went there? Well, in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul talks about how the church is being built and is being grown as believers are baptized into its number. Uh, When does that begin? Pentecost. Okay, so we could say, actually, that the origins of the church, as we understand it, you could say the the universal church, you could definitely say the visible church, the church as we see it in the world today, began at Pentecost. Jesus said uh, at the beginning of the book of Acts, in in Acts chapter 1, he said... um, It's interesting here. In fact, we're going to talk about this more in just a second as we think about the kingdom. But uh, Jesus says to his disciples, look, I'm going to send power to you in the Holy Spirit. You'll be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Okay? They are baptized in the Holy Spirit. You could say that at that moment the church begins. And then that same day, Peter preaches 3,000 plus people join the church. People are baptized into its number. Okay? So you could say that is when the church begins. I think that is a pretty safe, it's pretty safe to say, I think, that that's when the visible church begins begins as we understand it today. The idea of the invisible church, the communion of believers that have put their faith in God throughout all time that only God can see, well I'm not going to give an answer on exactly when that began but I'm sure there are lots of good ideas. Uh, I think you can definitely safely say that began before Pentecost. Okay, so this idea of the visible church, the church as we see it, the church as, uh, as God is continuously adding people to its number and we baptise them in, okay, Actually, that, I think, was born at Pentecost. So we're going to think quickly about the relationship between the church and two other distinct entities from the Bible. Okay, Uh, Distinct entities, I've got ahead of myself once again, but we're going to think about the relationship between the church and Israel first. Okay. We've mentioned Israel a few times today, and there is a, I've, read, I've, I've read three systematic theologies in preparation for this session, okay? and they all seem, like, really disagree over the nature of the church and Israel. Okay? When I say Israel, I mean, uh, I mean the physical descendants, actually, of Jacob. Okay? Primarily, that is what I mean. And as we understand the people of Israel in the Old Testament of the Bible, and of course, they're referred to several times in the New as well. So, for example, Louis Burkhoff, who wrote a systematic theology that was kind of one of the leading systematic theologies from the 1940s onward, simply said this. He said, look, he says, the church is the new Israel. The church has replaced Israel, the people of Israel, in God's plan for humanity. Uh, The promises that God made to Israel will be received by the church. Okay, that's simply like, that's what it's called. Now, that doctrine... 
uh, came under huge fire, particularly after the Holocaust. Okay, now Burkhoff wrote his systematic theology just after the Holocaust. But it was argued that supersessionism, the idea that uh, Christians um, kind of had replaced Jews in God's covenant, had actually formed the groundwork for the Holocaust. You can, you can think of that you know, as much as you want, but kind of that, um, you can think whatever you want on that. But the, the idea is that that doctrine came under fire massively. Okay. Um, but you, and, and so there were kind of other theologies formed, particularly in the United States of America, particularly kind of in evangelical circles, that began to talk actually about um, the people of Israel and uh, the church being completely distinct entities. Um, who, and the more you separate them as a, a distinct entities, the more you actually have to start believing that God has separate promises for one and the other. Okay, so this is a very popular thing in a lot of American evangelical circles. It comes with a lot of political backing as well um, because of the existence of an actual state of Israel today, of course, which complicates things. But, um, but actually, there's this idea that the church and Israel are completely distinct. The promises God made to Israel, he will fulfill to Israel. The, problem, the promises God made to, um, to, to the church, God will fulfill for the church. In other words, and this is where I think this argument really breaks down, it effectively says that God will save uh, Jewish people by virtue simply of them being Jewish, which isn't what the Bible actually teaches will happen. Okay? When Grudem gives kind of a, mi- a middle ground, he doesn't use the word new Israel as if ch- the church simply replaced the people of Israel and it's one for the other. He uses the phrase true Israel and does speak about how the promises God made to the people of Israel um, actually will be received by the church. But he reads Romans 11 as saying that actually there may be a future mass conversion of Jewish people to Christianity, a future belief in Christ, in which case they will be grafted back into their own olive tree. A bit more about that in, that, uh, in the session on Romans a couple of months ago. But without getting too bogged down in what that means, you get this idea that actually there is... It is, it is too simplistic, I think, to simply say, well, the church has just replaced Israel as God's chosen people. That's simply what it is. Actually, I think the Bible tells a broader story, a greater story. But make no mistake, the church, we are God's chosen people. God has chosen us to be the church. We are those who are in Christ. Salvation only comes through Christ. Let's make no mistake about that as we move on. It's a complex issue. Um, yeah. So, and actually to back up that idea that the church is the true Israel, actually you've, you've got that, that verse we read in Ephesians about, um, about Jesus having destroyed the dividing wall, that actually Gentiles are included in the covenant that God had with the people of Israel. Okay. So, uh, the second one that we'll think about, and then we'll have our break, is the relationship between the church and the kingdom of God. Okay, you may, if you're part of a church, um, have, been, uh, have been described as, as a kingdom community. Okay? So often we use phrases like that. We're a kingdom community. You know? We uh, want to see God's kingdom come. We are people who are living in the reality of God's kingdom. But are the kingdom and the church the same thing? Well, actually, no. The Bible makes a really clear distinction between the two. Um, the kingdom... Is, uh, and this is kind of the, the, the centre of eschatology, is that the kingdom is something which has both come and also hasn't yet. So the kingdom is a now and not yet reality. So we have a taste of God's kingdom now. Jesus said when he, came, uh, when he started casting out demons, um, well, when he was casting out demons in Matthew 12, Jesus said, if I cast out demons in the name of God, then the kingdom of God has come. Okay, so there's this idea that the kingdom is here. But there's also this idea that the kingdom is yet to come. In, in uh, Matthew 25, verse 34, Jesus speaks uh, about a future reality where God will, 
welcome people into his kingdom effectively. Okay? So, the kingdom is now and not yet. The church, well, the church is here, right? Actually, we, we can see the church around us. But more importantly, Jesus framed his ministry in terms of the kingdom, not the church. This is why I wanted to point out early on that the church is not all that God has planned. Actually, God's purposes are bigger than that, which is good news. Uh, and, and actually, that, um, that the church is part of the kingdom of God, but it's not the entire thing. Okay? The kingdom is bigger than the church, and we cannot know when God will fully establish it. That's essential, isn't it? In the, uh, I said we'd speak about that verse in Acts 1 again. Well, in Acts 1... Um, when Jesus tells the disciples that the Holy Spirit will come upon them, they'll be baptised in the Spirit, um, it's in response to a question that they've asked him. They say this, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? As in, that kingdom you've been speaking about, is this the moment, now you've risen again from the dead, where you're going to fully establish it? And Jesus says, it's not for you to know. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. I think that's crucial. There's a very clear, very important but there. Jesus says, actually, what's going to happen now is you are going to receive the Spirit and you're going to be my witnesses all over the world. That's the church, right? That's the beginning of what you might call the church age, okay? Jesus is saying, actually, the church is what's going to happen now. The kingdom is going to be fully established at another time. So the church can be understood to be the community of the kingdom. We can understand the church as a taste of the kingdom, but we cannot make the mistake of thinking the church is the kingdom. Right, uh, before we break for more coffee, anybody got any questions at this point? When, when you talk about uh, the link between the church and uh, Israel and the Jews. Yeah. Was there a. Uh, it makes me wonder whether Jesus in his ministry expected a welcome coming to his chosen people or. Whether he expect he understood he would be rejected, the capstone rejected, and there would almost be a new thing with the Gentiles, because mm. it seemed in the initial church age there was a lot of hostility from the Jewish establishment, yeah. and then all of this problem with the Gentiles coming in and the Jews coming in. Mm. But was this? I'm just, it makes think a far better thing to do would be to have a kingdom of all God-fearing people, Gentiles and Jews, all gathered together mm. and bypass this whole issue. So can I, if, just to summarise, so the question's kind of, do you think Jesus knew that he was going to be sort of welcoming in a new people? Or do you think he, he was you know, potentially surprised by the, by the opposition he had from Jewish leaders? Um, it's interesting, I, it's strange to answer that question with reference to Romans rather than to one of the Gospels, but I think the impression I get from Romans 11 when Paul speaks about uh, the relationship between uh, sort of Jewish belief in the Messiah and rejection of the Messiah and, um, and Gentile belief in the Messiah is actually that there's, it's something that really kind of aches for Paul as a Jew, and it actually, I think, implies perhaps that it even aches, aches for God as well, that actually, um, and yet this is the and yet this is the reality. I, 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 have to, I have to say, I don't think I can imagine Jesus being surprised by the opposition he had. And for example, like, things when, it, like when we get to John's Gospel and we look at Jesus talking about the sheepfold or the, um, the sh- uh, being the good shepherd and he says, um, there are sheep that are not of this pen that I'm going to welcome to me. It's actually a surprisingly positive way of, of looking at it. It's kind of, actually, do you know what? 
we've got a pen of sheep here, i.e. The, the Jewish people. He says, you know what, there's going to be more and this is a good thing and we're going to be one flock. And I think, yeah, I think it's looked at in an incredibly positive way in that sense. Um, yeah. That's a great question. Great Andrew, question. you were speaking earlier about um, heartening as a heart by God all by themselves. Yeah. And uh, it's, there's a phrase that Paul uses which is, um, which is in relation to that previous question. He speaks of a partial hardening. Mm. And obviously the implication is that God's partially hardening the Jews mm. in order to allow this to come to pass. Yeah. So that Yeah, I think that's a... Yeah, what I mentioned about... So the question was... Yeah, well, it's kind of a a suggestion. There's this idea that God has partially hardened the hearts of Jews. uh, The point being that um, Gentile inclusion will happen and then there'll be an an unhardening, as you said. Um, Well, I think that supports Wayne Grudem's idea of what the church's purpose is as kind of the true Israel. Um, If you use Paul's metaphor of the olive tree and potentially Jews coming back into it at one point in the future, I think that supports that. Um, But I... I'll stop there simply because I don't want to trip myself up. It's not something I can go much further into from my own knowledge, but definitely be interested to talk to you more about it in the break. Um, Sorry, yeah? it's a isn't it? I'm not sure, no, sir. Well, I mean, what, we're, what you're saying here is that we've, the true Israel... Mm. The church is the true Israel. Mm. Are we agreeing with that? Uh, that's what I'm leaning towards out of the various interpretations. Yeah. And I'm leaning the other way. Yeah? <laughs> yeah. It's amazing. I suppose it depends on how you look at the eschatology of it. Yeah, absolutely. Well. Um, I, can't, I think it's re- replacement theology, isn't it? Yeah. No, I don't agree with that. And I did suggest, I think, that it's a bit oversimplistic. Yeah. Um, but then to go in entirely the opposite direction suggests that God has two different plans for two different groups of people and that they're totally separate, I think, is equally wrong. Not, so. I don't think they're totally separate. Yeah. But when you look at the, uh, co- um, sorry, the what you call prophecy, uh, covenants and things like that, I don't think, but I think we're grafted into them rather mm. than them being grafted. The, yeah, the, the passage in Romans definitely suggests that the olive tree is the Jew's olive tree um, and, and that we're grafted into it and they'll be grafted back in. That's the formula. But, but, but beyond that, I'm gonna, we're going to stop there for coffee. But if you want to talk more about this idea of the people of Israel and, um, and what that means for us as Christians, a really hot, like, hotly contested topic, by the way, then let's chat about it in the break. But let's meet back in, in 13 minutes. Okay, let's proceed to think a little bit about uh, the way the church is described in Scripture. Okay, so uh, what we're going to look at is six... Uh, six examples of different metaphors that are used for the church in the New Testament. Okay, and these are this is a non-exhaustive list. Okay, there are other ways in which the church is described. There are lots of ways in which I think the functions of the church, the purpose of the church, is described without perhaps the explicit use of the word church. But we're going to look at, uh, at six um, models, figures, metaphors for the church in Scripture. Okay, um, and before we do, I, I just want to say this: I think it's a, I think it's a little bit of a mistake to think that one of these figures of the church entirely summarizes what the church is. Okay, I think we have to understand, uh, we have to understand, understand Scripture as a whole, don't we? Um, and we have to understand actually that these. Um, these models can actually be illustrating different things and different functions of the church. But let's begin with the body of Christ. We have uh, already visited this idea as we had a look at Ephesians. It says this in Ephesians 1, to 23. 
And God placed all things under his feet, that's Jesus of course, and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So the Greek word that's used there is kephale, which doesn't mean chief or boss or anything, it just mean, it means actual head. Okay, So Christ is the head of the church, which makes us, as the church, the body. Okay, and it illustrates that the church is a living organism, something that is uh, kind of actively doing something that's actually alive. Okay, it also illustrates, of course, most importantly, that the highest authority in the church is Christ. Okay, now uh, I was I was out for a cycle ride with my dad years and years ago, and um, on the side of the road we saw a pheasant that was lying there, really kind of suffering. Um, and my dad said, "I'll just I'll put it out of its mis- misery." Okay, so this is a little bit of a gruesome Im- uh, image, I'm afraid. Um, <laughs> And he, he put a stick over its neck to break its neck and pulled its head off by accident. Okay? And the, the body of the pheasant just leapt around just everywhere. And, and it just, I, I've got no better explanation for how a head without a body just, a, he, a, body, sorry, a body without a head has, just has no idea what it's doing. Okay? That's, that's all you needed to illustrate that point. All right? um, there you go. It'll be in your mind forever. I know they do, I know they do. Um, but the, but the, actually the idea is that when a church is trying to operate autonomously without the authority of Jesus, actually it, it can do anything really, like anything can happen and lots of those things are not good. Um, it illustrates that church is a living organism, that it's essential that we have Christ at our head, otherwise we won't have any life actually. Believers like different body parts fulfill different functions in the church. So in Ephesians, I think the main purpose of the body of Christ metaphor uh, is that Christ is the, the authority at his head. Okay, it's the same, same in Colossians. In Colossians, it says pretty much the same thing, except that this has been you know, decided right from the start. Okay? So, but in, uh, in Romans 12 and in 1 Corinthians uh, 12, as we um, mentioned earlier, the purpose of the metaphor is slightly different. It's actually to illustrate a little bit about what our purpose is as the body. So Christ is the head of the body, um, and actually believers like different body parts fulfill different functions in the church. Okay, so um, in both Romans and in 1 Corinthians, and I can't remember which one is, is which, but in one of them, I think it's 1 Corinthians, correct me if I'm wrong, there's this little, uh, this little kind of spiel about um, if you're an ear, don't, don't try to be an eye, or don't tell, the, uh, don't tell the ear that it's useless if you're an eye, and that kind of thing. If you're a foot, don't tell the hand that it's useless, all that stuff. Different body parts fulfill different functions with the authority that is the head, okay? All authority over the church belongs to Christ, um, and then there's this idea of what, what is the function of the body. So for each of these metaphors, I want to think about kind of what the Bible says about this metaphor for the church, what that illustrates about the church, and then what it suggests is the function of the church. Okay? And I think the function of the body of Christ metaphor is actually, if we're to read Ephesians chapter 4, um, as we did earlier, it's actually to grow, part of it is actually to grow into maturity under Christ the head. What does it say in Ephesians 4 verse 15? Speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. So actually, uh, part of the function of the body is to become more like the head, okay? To become emulators of the head, all right? So, body of Christ. Let's move on to think about the bride of Christ, okay? So uh, this is a, a metaphor that you find elsewhere in, in the Bible, as was just pointed out to me by Julian, actually. The, the, the actual phrase bride of Christ appears only once in Scripture in Revelation. But Paul appears to, in Ephesians chapter 5 that we read earlier, uh, compare the relationship between a husband and a wife to Christ and the church. 
Now, we don't want to take that as our only basis for the idea of the bride of Christ, because when Paul is talking about husbands and wives in Ephesians 5, he's talking about husbands and wives, right? And when he goes on to speak about, uh, you know, parents and children and slaves and masters, we know he's talking about actual household relationships. As an aside, he goes, and actually, this refers to Christ and the church as well. Well, what does it illustrate? Well, if there is anything to be said for the relationship between a husband and a wife, it should be a relationship of love. Actually, Paul tells husbands to lay down their lives for their wives in emulation of Christ, who laid down his life for the church. And there's something else about it as well. It's not just that uh, Christ loves us as the church very, very much. It's also actually that the church is awaiting Christ's return. If we're going to get to grips with this, we, uh, we kind of have to understand a little bit about ancient wedding ceremonies, okay? So uh, a lot of wedding ceremonies, as you might understand them in kind of biblical times, uh, would be, there'd be at least three parts to the, to the kind of wedding. There'd be the betrothal, okay, or the engagement, and then for whatever reason, and I don't know enough about this to go into much more detail, the groom would then go away, okay? So that the, the bride and the groom, uh, or the bride-to-be and the groom-to-be wouldn't spend the whole of their engagement together, whether he'd go off to war or to business or whatever it might be. Then there's the, the wedding ceremony, part two, which would be the groom's return, where they would marry, and then the groom would take the bride-to-be with him, okay? There's, uh, there's other, been other suggestions that part of the cultural norm was for the father of the groom to build an extension to his house. This is probably only, only being wealthy families, of course. Build an extension to his house in which the, the bride and his, uh, the groom and his new wife might live, which gives us a bit of extra insight into what Jesus might be talking about when he speaks to his disciples and says, in my father's house are many rooms. You're going to come and be with me forever. Okay? It might give us more insight into that. Um, but there's this idea that actually we're awaiting that second part where Christ returns and takes us to be with him. Okay, and then of course finally, the final part would be the celebration, the banquet. Okay, the, which uh, and you get a lot of, of banquet at a wedding metaphor in Revelation, for example. Now, Christ's love for the church, exemplified by his laying down his life for her, in the same way that this is something Paul exhorts uh, husbands to do for their wives. Um, as an imitation of Christ, he also says, "Look, what I'm asking you to do, uh, that is that's what Christ did for you." Okay, that's how the metaphor kind of functions in that sense. The bride submits to Christ. Okay, so, the, so the bride that is the church submits to Christ, takes us back to this idea of Christ being the highest authority. Now in Revelation twenty two seventeen, you get this verse that says, the spirit and the bride say come. Okay, and there's this, this, uh, this is right at the end of the Bible. I'll read a couple of verses for you actually. Um, it's like on the Bible's last page, just before that bit about there not being enough books. Or is that the end of John? Anyway, um, so 22.17 says this, The Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let the one who hears say, Come. Let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who wishes take the free gift of the water of life. And just before that, Jesus speaks. So you get this idea that the eternal destiny of the bride is beside Christ. Actually, that's the eternal position of the bride. Now, there was a little bit of uh, sort of conjecture that that we discussed in the break over whether whether the bride of Christ can really be understood to be the church as we understand it, as we've been defining it so far. And I think for me, um, we can can say that the bride of Christ actually refers to the the invisible church, particularly, you know, that church that actually includes anyone whose faith is in God, anyone who has believed in God. That's the eternal destiny of the bride is beside Christ. But what about the function of the bride? Let me read to you from 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 11 to 13. Oh, yes. It's always really hard to find these little letters. Um, 
2 Peter 3 verses 11 to 13 says this. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? And, and Peter's speaking to you know, the church or churches. You ought to live holy and godly lives. As you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming, that day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. We mentioned that this kind of idea that part of what the bride metaphor suggests is that we are waiting for Christ's return, okay? We're waiting for the day when God uh, constructs a new heaven and a new earth, all right? What do we do in our waiting? Do we sit and do nothing? No, Peter says, no, we live holy lives. In, uh, in Ephesians, when, uh, when Paul uh, speaks about Jesus laying his life down for the church, he also says... That, uh, that Jesus redeems the church and makes her holy, right? Jesus redeems the bride and makes her holy. So there's this element in which, actually, uh, Jesus has prepared us for him. Jesus has prepared the church as a perfect bride, okay? But there's an element as well. It says in, um, I believe it's Revelation chapter 19, it says the bride has made herself ready, okay? Which is interesting, because you think, hang on, if Jesus has made the church ready, why does it need to make itself ready? But the way I take that is that, actually, we can live lives that are striving towards maturity and holiness. Because in that time where you know, the, the uh, bridegroom would come to the, the, the bride and propose at kind of the betrothal, at that point, she's destined to be married to him. It's done. You know, that's going to happen. Does she just go and just mess around and do whatever she wants in the meantime before the wedding? No. That's just not what's expected, is it? Actually, she tries to live a life getting ready for the for the husband she's going to marry, okay? That's kind of the metaphor here. So the function of the bride is to prepare for the bridegroom's return by living holy <coughs> lives. Now, as I said, there's, there's, um, we should never understand one of these metaphors as encompassing everything that there is about the church. But I think we're putting together pieces of the puzzle here as to what the church does and how the church functions, okay? I said we've got six of these. We'll have questions after the third one, and then we'll have questions after the sixth one as well. So we saw in... Ephesians, um, once again, so having Ephesians and church together was a bit of a gift because we go over things twice a few times. But in Ephesians, we saw this idea that God is constructing a building, that the church is kind of a building that God is building, okay? And that's in, um, in Ephesians. But in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 16 to 17, the, the temple imagery is even more explicit. In a discussion that's about kind of, well, a lot of the discussion in 1 Corinthians is about kind of sexual immorality and stuff, but Paul says this. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred and you together are that temple. We like to say, don't we, bodies are temple or uh, remind people that their body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Well, when Paul actually uses this metaphor, he uses it collectively. For example, here in 1 Corinthians 3 verses 16 to 17, he says you together are a temple of the Holy Spirit. But of course, it's not massively wrong to say that as individuals, we are, in a sense, temples of the Holy Spirit simply because the Spirit lives in us. Okay. But when Paul describes the church as a temple of the Spirit, actually, he uses that collective term. You together are that temple. Now, that illustrates that the church is continuously being built as believers are added to its number. When the church is described as a building, it's implied that the building of that building is ongoing. Okay. And the church is where God kind of chooses to dwell on earth. All right. So when we think about the Jerusalem temple, as we mentioned earlier, we think about the Holy of Holies, where God's presence was, uh, was believed to be. Okay. And the, the high priest would go in like, you know, once a year. And you might know a little bit more about those kind of rituals that went on. 
But actually, God's presence dwells in us as believers in his church. In Ephesians 2.21, after that uh, idea of Gentiles being brought into this, uh, this building, uh, Paul says that the whole church is being joined together and that believers are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Okay, so there's this amazing uh, metaphor of us as the church being where God is choosing to dwell on earth. That is incredible. What's the function of the building or the temple? Well, in his discussion about sexual immorality in 1 Corinthians, Paul says this. Let me find it. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 18 to 20. He says, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit or are a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honour God with your bodies. We should never wrench that out of its context. Paul is talking about sex and the correct way to do it, effectively. But, but actually, what we get there is that our function as the, the, the temple of Christ is to honour God with our bodies, actually. If we are where God is choosing to dwell, we honour God in response with our bodies. Okay? And to continue to be built up, that's part of the function as well, to continue to be built going to look more at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5 in a second. So I won't read that to you now. Any questions at this point? Yeah, in relation to uh, the bride of Christ, mm. uh, pointed out that uh, it says in Ephesians 5 uh, about Christ uh, making the church clean mm. uh, in order to present her to himself blameless. And you broke it down, this is 26. So surely if those two are true, does it not infer that those two are separate? Um, One is the church and the other is the bride. Interesting. Is there a distinction between the church and the bride based on... uh, but yeah, based on um, Ephesians saying that Christ has made the church clean and Revelation saying that the church has made herself clean. Uh, and it says, in, it says in Revelation chapter 19 that um, the right, uh, white, I think it says, white stands for the righteous acts of God's people. Um, I personally would interpret it as um, actually just a, a call to holiness where we, have, we remember that, God ha- that Christ has redeemed us by his blood, made us clean. We live in that reality now. The way God sees us is as saints rather than as sinners. Praise Jesus for that. Um, and, uh, but actually, the, there is still a call to holiness on our lives, a call to try and live lives of holiness. Um, so I would interpret the idea that the bride has made herself clean as she has strived to live a holy life as well. That makes sense. That's how I'd interpret it. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, don't, I don't see the bride and, and the church as being the same. Mm. 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 Well, well, what we'll do is we'll just, I don't, I don't want to get bogged down in one particular metaphor, let's move on. Um, we, can, we can finish discussing it later by all means, but I think I don't want us to run out of time 
kind of have to some discussion at the end about the purposes of the church. I also am not sure we're going to agree entirely, so I think... Um, it's only because it's a common usage mm. Sure, sure. I, I think, I, pers- I personally do think the church is referred to as, I think the bride of Christ is a, is a metaphor for the church. I, what, I, what I would concede potentially is that we're referring there to the invisible church, i.e. everybody who, who God will save, effectively. So I'm gonna, what I'm going to do is uh, leave that one there as we move on to think about the royal priesthood. Have we got any other questions before we go on to royal priesthood? Okay, royal priesthood it is. Um, so, uh, the royal priesthood is quite, is quite unique. Using that kind of language, is, um, it's Peter that speaks about the royal priesthood in the first letter of Peter. Um, and as he does so, actually, he's using language that would have been very familiar, particularly to Jewish readers, okay? so, uh, or Jewish Christians. He says this, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. We are moving now, actually, into metaphors where you won't find the word church explicitly used, um, but when the person is speaking to the community of believers, we can definitely interpret that to mean the church. And, Paul, and Peter here is writing to a church or churches. Okay? So what this illustrates, actually, is some kind of continuity in the idea of priestly service to God. Okay? The role of priests in the Old Testament uh, was to offer sacrifices to God. You might call that priestly service. Now, uh, the actual kind of physical offering of sacrifices... Uh, is something that, that ended, okay? It ended uh, with Jesus. You might, that might be symbolized by the, um, the tearing of the curtain in two after Jesus died. There are various other reasons for believing that. But Peter is suggesting that there's still an element of offering sacrifices to God that incorporate, that's incorporated into our lives as Christians, okay? So um, in order to understand this, we have to understand that uh, Israel once was, was referred to as a kingdom of priests, Okay, I've written here, thus the church is a distinct entity from Israel. We didn't fully decide on that earlier. You're welcome to cross that out by all means. Um, but Israel was described as a kingdom of priests. So when Peter uses this language of a royal priesthood, we have to understand him as referring to the incorporation of Gentiles into God's people in some sense. Okay? But in Israel, actually priests and kings, priests and royals, so, you know, royals and priests, actually... Um, came from distinct tribes in Israel. Okay, so for example, the tribe of Levi is where you'd find the priests or the Levites, um, and the tribe of Judah usually was where you'd find the kings. Okay, so um, there's this idea that actually um, both of these things are possible in this new life in Christ. You can be both a priest and a royal somehow. Okay, in the church the roles can be combined. So um, what Peter is effectively saying is you get to fulfill the role of somebody in the royal family, okay, and the role of somebody who's a priest. You offer service to God, but you're also incorporated into God's family, you might say. All believers can have access to God at any time through Christ, once again symbolized by the tearing of the curtain. And Jesus is described in the book of Hebrews as the great high priest. So when we start thinking of ourselves as a royal priesthood, we should never begin to think that that means we don't need anybody else because Jesus is our great high priest. He is still our authority, still our head. And the function of the priesthood, well, if we're going to take the word priest 
quite literally, then there's an element of offering sacrifices. So we can go to passages like Romans chapter 12, verse 1, where Paul says to offer your body as a living sacrifice. We can go back to what we said about the temple of the Holy Spirit, as we're saying, what's, what kind of behavior is Paul saying we should do as the temple of the Spirit? Well, offer our bodies to God, because we were bought at a price. Okay, so the element of offering our bodies to God, offering kind of spiritual sacrifices, that's a language, uh, language that Peter uses in 1 Peter 2, 5. And ultimately it says, doesn't it, at the end of that verse that's there, to declare God's praises. Well, that's the role of a priest, is to point people to God. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Okay. Two more before we... Uh, yeah, I, th- I think we're going to get this done in the time. I hope we do. Flock of the Good Shepherd. Okay, so um, you'll know because I already told you that Jesus only, well, that the word church is only used uh, once, technically, possibly another time in the Gospel of Matthew. But you'll know that the church isn't referred to here explicitly as the church. But Jesus said these words I am the Good Shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. Okay, so there's, there's something quite actually wonderful and intimate about this, uh, what Jesus is saying here. He's saying that he's going to call the names of those who are in his sheepfold and they're going to recognise his voice and respond. There's actually elements here of kind of election and calling. But Jesus is, um, is saying that, that actually, as his followers, we recognize his voice. In a, you know, you might have kind of a field that had multiple shepherds and multiple groups of sheep, and they'd recognize the call of their own shepherd. We will recognize Jesus' call and respond to it. And of course, this illustrates the inclusion of Gentiles in the church as well, that we've been over lots. Jesus describes himself as the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. When we hear about um, uh, David before David was a king okay, in the Old Testament, uh, we find out when David comes to fight Goliath that um, because of his role as a shepherd, he's already fought like lions and bears and stuff like that. That was the role uh, and the responsibility of a shepherd in this kind of society, actually. They'd have to defend their flock against serious danger. And Jesus is saying, look, I lay down my life for my sheep. I put my life on the line and ultimately, I die for my sheep. There's something here as well. We're going to talk a little bit in a moment about the offices, various offices in the church and kind of the ways different churches are governed. Um, but uh, when one P- uh, in 1 Peter, when Peter talks about, um, in chapter 5, when he talks about the role of elders in the church, he says that uh, part of what they're instructed to do is to shepherd Jesus' flock until Jesus returns. Okay, so that's not to say that we are no longer under Jesus' authority or Jesus' shepherding. It's saying that actually the role of a church leader is to shepherd people, and particularly the role of kind of eldership here, to shepherd people, and that that's kind of emulating the role Jesus plays. Uh, But the Greek word translated as pastor uh, actually only appears once in the New Testament, but that also means shepherd as well. We read that in Ephesians 4 verse 11. So what's the function of the flock? What's the flock expected to do? Actually, when we're described, or when humankind are described as sheep elsewhere in the Old Testament, it can be quite negative. You know that verse in Isaiah 53? Uh, We all, like sheep, have gone astray and turned to our own way. Sheep are really dumb animals. That's the truth of it. They're just really, really not very smart. And yet, actually, that's not what this is saying about us at all, I don't think. But it is saying this, that we need to trust and follow Christ, to listen to his voice and to follow him, and that there's some kind of special responsibility, 
<coughs> excuse me, special responsibility on church leaders to actually shepherd the flock until Christ returns as well. Okay? Finally, the branches of the true vine. Um, as I said, not an exhaustive list of all the different things, metaphors that might apply to the church in Scripture. But Jesus says this, I am the vine, you, speaking to his disciples, we can hear this for ourselves as well, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Okay. So there's a, there's a closeness here that we haven't had. We, we had in the body metaphor, but we might not have had in, uh, in many of the others. Where actually we are uh, exhorted here to be attached to Christ. Literally drawing all of our source, all of our life from Jesus. See, uh, when Jesus talks about a vine, he's almost certainly talking about a grapevine, okay? And grapevines are really, really fertile kind of vines, okay? They produce, one vine will produce loads and loads of grapes, okay? So what Jesus is saying is that if you are rooted in me, you're going to produce lots and lots of grapes. You're going to produce lots and lots of good fruit. But Jesus speaks in the same breath about being cut off from the vine. And he's saying if you cut yourself off or if you are cut off from the vine, you will not bear any fruit, or any good fruit. He says in John 15, 4, that it's impossible to bear good fruit which glorifies God. Uh, we can understand that kind of in the way of kind of good works, in the way of evangelism, all these things. It's impossible to bear good fruit which actually glorifies God without abiding in Christ. What this means is that... I'll come to you in just one second, Peter. Um, so what this means is that um, actually it, it, it's possible to do good things. Okay, we know that, don't we? There are lots of people who don't believe in Jesus but do good things. But actually, these things don't glorify God unless they're done for him if we're rooted in Christ. That's what he's effectively saying here. He names a, fruit, a few examples, Jesus, of, of good fruit, which includes prayer, love, joy. If you look at Galatians 5, you see the fruit of the Spirit. Actually, there's this idea that when the, uh, when the Spirit of God is living within us, you know, Paul asks in Ephesians, doesn't he, that Christ would dwell in our hearts, that actually good fruit will grow. Bearing fruit which comes from Christ glorifies God. And the function of the branches is to glorify God by producing that good fruit, which can only come by drawing from the life-giving source of Christ. Okay. So I'm going to pause there for questions before we move on. Yeah, that's really helpful. Thank you, Paul. So you're kind of asking about the... Uh, which church am I referring to? Yeah, it's really, really good. Um, we are slightly restricted, of course, by our language. Um, but yeah, I think, yeah, I'm talking about the, yeah, the, the universal church, I think, on the whole. I think there, are, but then, I think what's important to recognise is that the church across the world, the community, you know, the community of all believers, actually should be emulated in our local congregations, shouldn't it? So the priorities that we're going to get onto in just, in just a moment, actually, of the church as a whole actually that should spill down into our local church meetings, shouldn't it? So as much as we're restricted by the fact that church with a capital C and church with a small C mean the same, uh, mean different things, sorry, we're also, um, actually it's kind of a blessing because most of these things that apply to one apply to the other as well. That makes sense. Some of it should spill over into our midweek small groups and then should spill into our Christian friendships, yeah. our Christian households, and the sort of aspects of whenever believers gather, yeah. They can look to model some of this, so divine and Absolutely. Jesus. Absolutely, I definitely yeah, this should spill over into yeah, every aspect of our lives. Um, that's great, yeah, it's wonderful. So let's think about the ways churches are governed. Okay, this is the penultimate thing we'll discuss. The final one actually will address that question Paul asked about uh, yeah, what what should the church be doing effectively? What 
What are the things that we as the church should be engaged in? Um, but for now, different ways that churches are run. Okay, this is, this is a relatively just a factual thing. We'll spend a couple of minutes on this. But first, tell the person next to you... Um, just for one minute, how is your church governed? So who has authority and how does that work? Um, and if you, if you go to the same church, then if you've ever been to another church, then, then explain how that one was governed. Okay, one minute, go. Okay, let's draw that one to a close. Um, Book of Hebrews has something very important to tell us as followers of Jesus about what we should do with our leaders in our church says this, have confidence in your leaders and submit to their authority because they keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Do this so that their work will be a joy and not a burden for that would be of no benefit to you. So, you know, we're told to, to love and respect and support and pray for and have confidence in the leaders of our church. Uh, but who are those people and how does church government work? Well, there are a few different offices in the Bible. Oh, by the way, I hope that ultimately you all said that Christ is the head of your church. Anyway, um, I don't know. Um, but there are different ways. There are, there are a whole host. There are a whole host. Those of you who didn't say it are going, ah, oh, silly me. Um, so the... Uh, oh, goodness me. Okay. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, anyway... Um, so different models of church government. So Christ at the head, but who has the authority below Christ, above the congregation, perhaps? Well, there are different ways of, uh, there are lots of different ways of doing this. If you've ever, if you're part of a non-Church of England church, but you've been along to a C of E church, then you, you know already there are different ways of doing things, okay? So um, there are different offices that are designated in the Bible um, that kind of are designated as kind of church offices, people who might be in leadership in a church in some way. The first of those is an episkopos, an overseer, okay? And in the, in the King James Version of the Bible, that is translated as bishop, okay? But it doesn't actually mean bishop. It means overseer, somebody who watches over, okay? And it stresses the function of overseeing in that office, okay? Now, in, in kind of... You never want to say there's a consensus in New Testament scholarship because that doesn't exist. But there's, um, there's, it's generally believed these days, actually, that an, that an elder and an overseer are actually the same thing. And that generally that role is the same, but it's got a different stress depending on which word is used. If you read all the letters of Paul, particularly the pastoral epistles, um, you'd see actually that, that often elders and overseers appear to be referred to uh, interchangeably. But I'm not, that's not gospel. So, yeah, anyway... Um, so uh, I think an elder is, is similar to an overseer, does a similar job, but a presbyteros, which is an elder, actually stresses the maturity and the dignity of the office particularly. Okay? So it suggests that people fulfilling this role should have maturity, should have good character, should have dignity. It's important. Of course, the word presbyteros in Greek also just means old person, okay? or older person, let's put it that way, to, to be PC. All right? um, so actually there's this, uh, I, I, th I think actually that an overseer and an elder are the same role, stressing different things about the role, okay? And then you have this other role that's described called a deacon, okay? And there's not quite as clear a consensus on what a deacon actually is. It comes from the word dekonos, which just means uh, servant, okay? A person who serves. Um, and sometimes it can be translated as minister. Uh, obviously, uh, the translations of episkopos as bishop and uh, of deacon as minister have taken very, very literally, in, for example, the Church of England. Um, but 
but actually, it's, it's not quite as clear what a deacon's function is. There's a general consensus that the office of deacon was born in Acts chapter, uh, Acts chapter 6. Right at the beginning of the chapter, effectively what happens is uh, the apostles want to be out on the streets preaching the gospel of Jesus to everybody, but they've got loads of people in their church community, particularly, kind of, particularly widows are mentioned, who really need providing for materially, um, but they're having to devote them time, their time to that when they want to devote their time to that. So they say, right, we need some people to take over the role of providing materially for the widows, okay, and the other needy people in the congregation, let's elect some people to do that. They choose people. The word deacon isn't used, but that's where the office is thought to have originated, okay? It's a position that's subordinate to elders or overseers, and it's probably got an emphasis on uh, kind of material care for congregants, um, maybe pastoral care, um, but it's something slightly different, okay? There's not a massive consensus on exactly what that means. I was thinking about the different roles within our church that might fulfill that role, kind of taking care of material needs. One that sprang to mind, you're welcome to disagree, was kind of a treasurer role or something like that, where you've got uh, a responsibility for overseeing, actually, kind of, that some of the church's money goes towards uh, good causes and the poor and that kind of thing. Paul here is our treasurer at CCM, so there you go, Paul, you got to mention. Um, So... uh, So let's think, uh, based on those words, with those words in mind, those different offices in the church, let's think of three, the three main different ways of church government. Um, Some models of these kind of, that give these three categories, give a fourth as well, that they'd call non-polity. Okay, polity is another word for church government, um, and a non-polity congregation, for example, or a non-polity denomination, such as the Quakers, for example, would say we don't need any government because we've got the Holy Spirit. So uh, we're, gonna, we're not going to cover that one, um, but yeah, it's, it's effectively anarchy, so um, there you go. So, well, it is, isn't it? You know, no, no authority, but because we, we've got the spirit. So let's start with the Episcopal system, okay? So you know that that's born from uh, the Greek word episkopos, which means overseer, translated as bishop in the KJV, and in the Episcopal system, bishops have the highest authority under, under Jesus, okay? Um, and it's their job to uh, ordain subordinates, okay? So, uh, for example, in the Church of England, there is the Archbishop of Canterbury. He's the overall uh, earthly leader of the C of E, perhaps, um, and he's got, you, you could say, um, so he would elect, he would ordain uh, the people below him, other archbishops, uh, bishops, um, and then below that, they'd ordain ministers and that kind of thing. I, I might not be entirely correct on that. It's complex, but there's this idea of um, those who are highest up will ordain those who are below them. Okay, so it'll kind of tear down like that. Okay, so another example, of course, is the Roman Catholic Church, uh, which ultimately the authority lies with the Bishop of Rome, the Pope. Okay, so uh, in kind of in some Methodist churches, Anglican or in American, they call that the Episcopal Church or Episcopalian, um, and the Roman Catholic Church. They're examples of Episcopal governments. Okay, so with varying degrees of complexity, it can get very, very, very complex. Um, There's some biblical backing for this, this idea that uh, there were sort of overall leaders within the church. And and something I may not have have stressed was that a bishop would have authority over several churches, not one. And and for example, when Paul is giving a a kind of a recollection of what he's recently been up to in Galatians 1, he refers to um, James, John and Peter as being the pillars of the church in Jerusalem. So it's possible that he's referring to their their office, them being high up. Um, In Acts, you get this idea that James is the head of the Jerusalem Council of Elders, so he's kind of got a special position above others, okay? But as I think we're going to see, there's not as much biblical backing for this 
way of church government than it is for others. Um, most of the Episcopal system is actually born of tradition um, and kind of adding in other roles as time went on. Okay, so Presbyterian is the second from the Greek word presbyteros, which means elder. Um, and in a, in a Presbyterian church, and you'll, you'll learn actually that this can take all sorts of different forms. It's also quite diverse what this can look like. But the people who have the authority in that church government are the elders. Okay? Elders traditionally are elected by a church congregation, and they usually have, there's usually a team of elders, several elders, um, uh, who at their head may have a teaching elder um, who may also be the pastor. Okay? That's tr- traditionally the way it's done, I think, in the actual Presbyterian church. Um, elders are usually elected, and they preside over one church congregation, usually. Okay? Not remotely the only way of doing Presbyterian church, but the point is elders have the authority, and usually those elders are not chosen from above, they are chosen from below, from the congregation. Okay? So, uh, examples, Presbyterian church, the ref- most uh, kind of reformed churches use an, use an eldership system as well. Uh, Pentecostal system as well usually uses eldership as a model of church government, but it looks different in all of those. Um, so, model... So, It's generally thought now in kind of in uh, New Testament scholarship that actually all the churches that we find in the New Testament, all the congregations were actually led by eldership teams. It's generally just considered that that's how they always did it in the Bible. Uh, when, when there's one occasion in Acts where Paul, and I think it's when Paul and Barnabas leave a church, maybe it's just Paul, uh, leaves a church. Before, they, before they're going, they, elect, they appoint elders. They make sure that there are elders to oversee those churches. And there are a few times where congregation appears to vote for elders and appoint them in that sense. Okay. And finally, the congregational form of church. As you can probably guess, uh, in a congregational church, the entire local congregation has authority. Uh, There's an emphasis on autonomy, which means that no outside authority has authority over that church. And there's an emphasis on democracy. And what is usually cited here is the priesthood of all believers, as we talked about in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. You are a royal priesthood. That refers to every one of us. We should make decisions together. That's the backing, particularly for that form of church government. When you look for um, support for that form of church government in Scripture, what you find is there are several matters on which entire church congregations will all participate or all perhaps vote or whatever. So, for example, there's a letter, I'm trying to think now exactly without going, because I don't want to look it up, it'll take ages. So, um, when they're trying to, when, when a church congregation, they need to send a letter to another church congregation, they send it together. There's, there's something about doing that. They also do elect uh, elders and all that kind of thing as well. Um, on the whole, I think there's, uh, so that, yeah, for example, there you've got Baptist churches. Unite, the United Reformed Church uses kind of a, a hybrid of the Presbyterian and the congregational system. Lots of non-denominational teams, uh, systems, churches, use um, the congregational uh, method of government as well. So, to be honest, rather than give you a clear answer on what, which of these models has the most biblical basis, um, well, I think I've probably suggested, oh, I will, I'll tell you. I think, um, I think that there's... I think there's biblical support for Presbyterian and congregational churches, to be honest, but I lean, I think, more towards Presbyterian. Um, But there's a question at the end of this uh, handout actually for you to think about that on your own um, as you go away. Just think, actually, which of these has the most biblical backing? Um, And, yeah, I suppose you could also think kind of what's, what's the biblical basis for each of them? Maybe compare and contrast them. It's quite an interesting exercise. Okay, right. Before we do our final part, let's stop for questions. Any questions on church government? Tim. So think about Ephesians 4 that you were talking about there, uh, those particular gifts. Yeah. How would you think they would fit into kind of the 
It's a great question. How do I think the offices in, offices in Ephesians 4.11 might fit into a biblical view of how to govern a church? Um, I think those... I think, I think those offices, I think they're offices that uh, appear to be, it appears to be suggested that they're leadership offices, as we talked about earlier. Um, and I don't think you have to have one of them in order to be, for example, on an eldership team. I don't think that's the case at all. Um, I think you might have somebody uh, who's in church leadership who has one of those gifts who isn't an elder. But at the same time, you might have elders who don't necessarily identify as one of those four or five things and yet ha- and yet. Uh, meet the qualifications of an elder that you find, for example, in the pastoral epistles. Um, so I think there's a big overlap, um, and I think you'd expect probably to find people with those gifts in eldership positions, but it wouldn't, I, don't think they're, I don't think they're joined at the hip. That makes sense. Any more questions before we do our final section? Okay, so thinking about this big uh, question I asked at the beginning, what is the church for? I want to ask you to turn to the person next to you quickly and discuss with them, when you go to a church that isn't your church, one that you're not familiar with, um, and we all do that from time to time, visiting relatives, whatever it might be, um, what elements do you expect to find in that church service? And that includes things that happen in the week, things that happen in the greater ministry of the church. What things do you expect that church to be doing? And you can get as specific as you want. So, for example, sung worship might be one of them, okay? What things do you expect to see in a church? Go. Okay. I'd love for us to compile a quick list, actually, of all the different things you might expect to find in a church. Can Can we shout some out? Something you might expect to find? Prayer. Prayer. Great. What else? Preaching, teaching. Preaching, teaching. Yeah, are you talk, do you mind if I ask, are you specifically talking about sung worship? Yeah, let's go with that because you may think of other forms of worship, worship you'd expect to see as well. Donuts, let's go with food. Community. Oh, the environment, okay, interesting. So, yeah, so, um, sorry, what was the first one you heard from over Community. And then um, I heard environment stuff. Sorry for the terrible writing. Prophecy. Yep. So, yeah. So, yeah. Kind of prophecy and 1 Corinthians 14 style of worship. Yeah. Tongues and interpretation. Okay. So, let's... I'm just going to put tongues and int. You have to decipher that in a moment. One or two more things. Sacraments, okay. So by sacraments, we mean baptism and communion. Unless you're a Catholic, in which case there are like seven. Um, Yeah. Evangelism. Nice. Okay, what I'm going to do is just add one more thing to the list, and that is... So I've added in, that, that stands for non-evangelistic ministry. So something that you might be doing for people in the local community or whatever that isn't primarily evangelistic. Um, yeah, we're going to talk about that in just a second. So there, there's a non-exhaustive list of the things you might expect to find in a church. Um, there might even be things that you differ on that you think, nah, I'm not sure that's essential to a church being a church. I don't think we can, we can put together an absolutely perfect list of what you have to have to be a church. I don't think... But 
what we've got here uh, on your handout is three spheres that actually I think are really helpful in understanding what the church's responsibilities are. Okay? So it's three forms of ministry. It's ministry to God, otherwise known as worship. Ministry to the body, as in ministering to those who are part of the congregation, who are believers in Christ. And ministry to the world. So what do we do for the people outside the walls, people outside the church who actually, um, who actually don't know Jesus yet, and for those who are, who are kind of... Uh, in particularly downtrodden parts of society, all that kind of thing. What do we do for the world? Well, I'm going to quickly give you a, uh, a little bit of information in, in kind of what I mean by those things now. I think a healthy church is exhibiting uh, all three of these things, is, is actually prioritising all three. A church that prioritises one more than the others ends up going in, in potentially quite an unhealthy direction. But let's think first about ministry to God. Now, you might think, Actually, everything that we do in the church is worship, and so we could incorporate everything into this circle. But let's think for just a moment about the things that we are thinking. I am, this, the reason we're doing this is simply for the sole purpose of giving God glory. Okay? Uh, so, in the early church, some examples that we can see uh, are Ephesians 5.19, Colossians 3.16, a couple of others, where Paul says, um, having the Spirit in you is going to cause you to sing hymns and recite psalms, uh, and that that's going to be a part of your, of your church life. Okay? That's something he massively encourages. That's a part of what I'd expect to see in a worship service, people praising God with their mouths. Okay? I would expect to see that. All right. Now, um, and you've got a hope, of course, that actually what that's, that's being done in the power of the Spirit. Jesus said in John 4, 23 to 24, in response to a woman who said, a Samaritan woman who said, look, the, the Jews are saying we have to worship in Jerusalem. I want to worship in Samaria. Where do I worship? And Jesus says, no, it's not about a place. Actually, uh, God's going to call those, God's gonna, uh, call those who are going to worship in spirit and truth. In fact, is what he says. Actually, in spirit and truth is where worship takes place. So actually, that can obviously look like lots of different things. It definitely shouldn't just look like singing, but actually worshipping God in spirit and in truth is the worship that God wants from us. Ministry to God. Ministry to the body. There's, I, uh, I read a, um, one, of the, one of the systematic theologies I read effectively concluded, uh, he defined these kind of purposes of the church as the purposes of the gathered church, And he had three of those. The gathered church, when the church meets together, this is what they should be doing for the people within their midst. And then it was the scattered church, what the church should be doing for the world. And he effectively said that um, it's evangelism and nowhere else is the church told to do anything but that. And then I thought, hang on a minute, like, because actually it's true that in the letters of Paul, you won't find much about uh, kind of the ways that the church should be engaging with the outside world outside of evangelism. But what about all of the things Jesus said? about uh, loving people who aren't, remotely, um, who aren't remotely responsive to your love, loving people who hate you, loving and serving people who are downtrodden in society. Look at all that stuff. What do we do with that? Well, that's definitely something on the church as well. But let's start with ministry to the body. Well, um, as, we, as we highlighted earlier, the church should be centred around biblical teaching. Actually, the reformers um, were really, really hot on this. This is something that Martin Luther was really passionate about. He simply said that the church needs to be centred around the gospel message. Okay, the simple message that Jesus died for you. You can have eternal life through faith in him by grace. Okay, that's what that's what Luther said that the church should be centred around. Calvin said uh, that the the, uh, church should be centred around the teaching of the whole Bible. Okay, and I think they were both right, to be honest. Um, Actually, the church should be centred around the teaching of the whole Bible but actually, the gospel should be central. It is the gospel that is the message of salvation. So, 
So there's, there's truth in both that, isn't it? That uh, teaching that is biblical, and in 2 Timothy you get that, um, that sort of, uh, that suggestion that, um, that all scripture can be used to, to challenge and to encourage and to admonish and all that, all that stuff, okay? So teaching that's centred around, uh, around the Bible. And then fellowship, which in Greek is a, I mean, it's a very Christian word in English, isn't it? But um, in Greek, the word koinonia is translated actually as sharing or as communion elsewhere in the Bible. So there's this idea that fellowship includes not just spending time together, but actually sharing what we have with one another. Okay, the uh, overall leader of Christchurch, Manchester, Colin, I heard him say the other day, look, poverty was eradicated in the early church. Because you look at this early church communities, and it says they shared everything they had with one another and nobody was needy. Okay, that is the kind of fellowship that we're actually called to in our church community. Okay, it's incredible, radical, actual uh, fellowship, sharing with one another, communion with one another. This should actually be central. And we, we've learned already, haven't we, about the, the priority of unity in the body of Christ. And finally, there's ministry to the world. Well, I think I, I agree with the guy I mentioned earlier in that the, the primary outward call of the church is to evangelize, to reach the lost, to reach those who are, in the language of Ephesians, uh, spiritually dead with the message of Jesus Christ. But actually, believers are called to other things as well, called to good citizenship by Paul and called towards an imitation of God's love, even towards those who don't respond to it. Actually, if you look in Luke chapter 6 and chapter 10, you see Jesus talking about uh, loving, serving people who don't even respond to the message you have. Okay. So as we, as we finish, I just want to uh, just hand over to you for just a quick activity because I want us to have a look at this list, if you can decipher it, um, of things that we'd expect to see in a church service. And I want you to add in anything that your church does as well, kind of the components of your service. And I want to encourage you to put it somewhere in these uh, circles, actually, and think to yourself, right, what function is that fulfilling? Is that ministry to God? Is it worship? Is it ministry primarily to the body, to the people in the church already? Or is it actually ministry to the world? And it's a, it's a Venn diagram, which means that you can put it in multiple circles if you so wish. You may even put everything dead in the centre, but there you go. Um, yeah, do that for a couple of minutes and then I'll wrap up. Okay, as you, as you continue to do that, I'm just going to just going to wrap up just so anybody who needs to leave can leave um so just to very quickly sort of reiterate what those things are um i mentioned before that if a church focuses entirely on one of those three ministries actually it can end up with the church becoming quite unhealthy for example if a church uh, ministers entirely to the body to the people within the church and, and forgets the other two spheres then you end up with a church that thinks that, one, it's all about them, and also actually a church that isn't growing because people aren't being added to its number, right? Similarly, if you have a church that focuses entirely on ministry to the world, but doesn't actually focus at all on teaching the word of God and fellowship, you end up with a church that's full of actually very shallow believers who are brand new to faith and nobody who can actually kind of shepherd the flock, as we might say, all right? Well, I don't see any massive problems, particularly with kind of focusing entirely on ministry to God. But if we focused entirely on one of those specific elements of ministry to God, like sung worship, for example, then actually we'd end up with a church that never did anything. We would just gather together, sing together, all that kind of thing. Of course, it's all included in our ministry to God. Uh, Paul commands us, doesn't he, to, uh, he says, in everything you do, do it as if for Christ Jesus. But I think that summarizes well what the ministries of the church are. So I'm, I'm going to park that there, but are there any final questions as we finish? 
Okay, so I think the question was, uh, with this kind of mentality, how do I avoid it just being me and God when I'm in church? How do I avoid being individualistic? It's a great, great question. Um, I think something I tried to emphasize as we looked at the metaphors of the church is actually how Paul constantly talks about the church functioning together. Um, so, you know, for the body, the body of Christ, for example, the sum of its members with Christ at the head, uh, performing different functions together. Uh, even the temple... Um, uh, of the Holy Spirit, you are being built together to be a temple of the Holy Spirit. I think reminders of those kind of ideas of what the church is for brings us together. Does that make sense? Which comes back to teaching, I suppose. So teaching that's about actually a non-individualistic thing, where actually it can be so it can be possible that God cares about each of us as individuals, but also is building a church which is a body as well. So that's great. Yeah. Let's park it there. Thank you.